not know that. <laughs> I didn't either until he brought it out about Biden, for God's sakes. Oh, my God. Anyway, Tim Martin's with us. He's chair of the Republican, Oxford County Republican Party. He's also a commissioner at uh, Newberry, which I think is a great town, really doing a lot of good things, got a lot of good commissions and stars lined up. And uh, I'm going to turn it over to Tim, let him talk about what interests him right now and where he's been. We've got a couple of things on the table uh, we can start off with. And one is uh, the school world, the school board, uh, which has become, as you know, politically, at long last, the seat of all interests in government. It used to be that school boards went kind of under the radar, but not now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I appreciate you having me back on the show, Ward. It's always a, always a pleasure, and uh, I think we can all agree that you're you're far superior <laughs> in your mental <laughs> faculties uh, than our president right now. But oh, boy. <laughs> you're right. the The school board uh, is becoming an issue, particularly because of the comprehensive zoning, which was essentially forced uh, sort of upon the board. They didn't really want to do it, but Superintendent Shane Andrew uh, was sort of a, a proponent from uh, for this versus the spot zoning that the school board wanted to do. And I probably actually should differentiate between the school board and uh, chairwoman uh, Tina Certain uh, because she seemed to be kind of driving the bus with regards to spot rezoning versus comprehensive. And the difference is uh, sort of uh, on the spot rezoning, you're just kind of tinkering around the edges. And with the comprehensive rezoning, you're looking at all the schools across the whole district, and you sort of have to kind of uh, weed through a little bit of the language uh, because there's, like all kinds of government, there's all these little acronyms and that sort of thing. So I'll just try to boil it down as much as possible. The The school board right now uh, is fighting a battle they, because they basically have kicked the can down the road for 43 years. There has not been a comprehensive zoning in Alachua County for 40 three years really uh, <laughs> yeah yeah we had a joint meeting a uh, joint uh, city uh, elected representative in the school board uh, meeting last week uh, and that was shocking to me I didn't realize it had been that long now the school board's been doing these uh, sort of spot rezonings uh, for for ever since then but uh, a total district-wide county-wide and those are the same things county-wide or district-wide uh, those are the same things, and they have not been done or been doing that for uh, you know over 40 years now. So uh, the county school board is going to look at every school and uh, every capacity, whether it's high school, middle school, uh, elementary school. And I'll kind of give you a little bit of the numbers. Uh, there's currently, uh, if you if you look across these districts, um, in the just in the elementary uh, portion. There's uh, the actual enrollment is almost uh, 13,000 students. Uh, the capacity is actually a little over 15,000. And when I talk about capacity here in this context, we're saying uh, butts and seats. So students, uh, middle school, there's are right around 6,000 students. The capacity is actually about 7,800. Uh, on the high school level, there's almost 8,000 students and the capacity for about 9,000. Well, you can do some quick math and see schools aren't overcrowded. I don't know what all the issues are about the number of people that are in these schools or talking about all the schools are overcrowded. Well, when you look across the entire county, there is capacity 
when you see that dynamic, the school board, or excuse me, the, the state education board is not going to approve another school be built. Uh, whenever there's capacity, you cannot build a school. Uh, so they have kind of an uphill battle trying to justify building another school with the general fund dollars that come in through your taxes because the state has sort of the, uh, the, the authority on that. What they could do is build another school using the sales tax dollars that the county uh, residents passed over the last couple of times it's been on the, on the docket. It's, it's usually gotten passed. Uh, so they've got to kind of figure out whether or not there's enough money through the sales tax to even be able to do that and whether they even want to do that to begin with. And here's a little bit of the issue. Currently, there is six high schools, nine middle schools, and, and uh, three elementary school concurrency zones. And we'll talk a little bit about this concurrency report. And feel free to jump in if you feel like I'm rambling. But the concurrency report is a tool that the school board is supposed to use when they are figuring out the longevity of the schools and the school system with where to put kids. So you have this concurrency report. Every city sends a report to the school board when there's a new housing development that is drawn up and that's going to be going on the books. And there's sort of two phases. There's, I think, it's called planning phase and then in-development phase so there's sort of two tracks of numbers running. One's sort of the long-term look, mm-hmm. and one is the short-term look. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the at the current state, uh, there is uh, three thousand three hundred eighty-three. I'm actually got some numbers in three thousand three hundred eighty-three uh, single-family homes on the on the board uh, district-wide, and there are two thousand eight hundred thirteen multifamily. Uh, development units on the board. So when the county is looking at these numbers, every single family home generates X number of children. Every multifamily home also generates X number of children. So you put this in the algebraic equation and it should tell them how many seats are needed in what places because the concurrency report also tells them geographically where every unit is being built. And right now, uh, there are 52% of the single-family homes are actually being built within the county, uh, you know, in the, uh, what do you call the area that the county covers that isn't a city uh, covered? The urban uh, urban, uh, fringe, I guess. I've forgotten. Yes, it'll come to me. But anyway, um, in the cities, uh, that number is actually 16, 115 single-family units. So right now, there's more being built within the county purview than within the, the city jurisdictions. And on the multifamily level, there's 2,457 multifamily units being built in the county and only 356 within the cities. So there's a lot going on within the county than is going on within the actual cities themselves. I think leading the way on the single family is Alachua, High Springs, and Newberry. I didn't write that number down, uh, but it kind of shows you. Let let me ask you this, Tim. Yeah. I'm looking at the slides you sent. Okay. And I'm looking right now at the elementary utilization. Right. And I'm just interested in what that, it it looks like, um, wow, you know, Newberry. Yeah. 141% of school capacity. Does that mean there are more kids than there is capacity for schools? 
Yes, there's 41% more children than there is actual capacity. They're actually what feeding to them. <laughs> well, it's a it's a massive game of musical chairs. In principle, Vicki McElhaney over at elementary school does a masterful job. It's like this uh, 450 piece orchestra or something, and she's sitting up there on the uh, the conductor's table, uh, kind of orchestrating all this. They actually, we actually have children in Newberry that are eating lunch, lunch, l u n c h, lunch at about 9:30 in the morning. So you got shifts. You got shifts then. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's it's uh, it's not, uh, you know, obviously desirable. The teachers and the students and the staff over there uh, do the best job that they can. Uh, but technically, yes, it's 41 percent over capacity. And mind you, that elementary school in Newberry only serves the K through four grades. The fifth grade, <laughs> the fifth grade is actually over at the middle school. Because that that was that was done a long time ago when it was over capacity then. So can you imagine if it had the kindergarten through fifth grade also? Uh, it would be it would be super super over capacity. And I don't think that right now the county school board has any expectation of changing anything over at the elementary school until I believe it's twenty might be actually twenty twenty seven. Uh, it's a couple years off, if I remember correctly. Of course, that can change at any point uh, and certainly needs to. Uh, but when we look at the numbers, uh, most of the overcapacity is actually due to students who are not living in Newberry. The school board likes to uh, sort of uh, passive-aggressively condemn Newberry for building houses. We always hear, hear that. Uh, internally and kind of through back channels and that sort of thing. Uh, but the reality is it's not the students from Newberry and Newberry schools. It's actually the students from other communities nearby who are being zoned over to Newberry. Archer, for instance, uh, all those children uh, primarily come over here if they don't go to the elementary school there in Archer. Uh, all those students. Word, let's talk about that word concurrency for a minute. Yeah. Now, as I understood the word once upon a time, uh, it had to do, for example, with all the traffic that was coming. Th- this is all different from schools, I guess. The traffic that was coming through from Gilchrist County through Newberry yeah. to work in Alachua County was using up Newberry's concurrency, which the Byerly and those guys were using as an excuse for Newberry not to build. Sure, sure. How does well, that, uh... that word work with schools? Is it the same? Well, yeah, uh, it's it's basically used kind of in the same way. It's sort of the the dynamic of relations between governmental ed- entity entities uh, to be concurrent with each other, so that when you build something, the infrastructure and whatnot has to kind of be there at the same time. So if you're going to build a big industrial uh, plant, for instance. Uh, you need to make sure that you have the the pipes and the water supply underground to be able to service that, the overhead power lines or whatever. So all these different entities can kind of work together through this this theory of concurrency. Uh, And like I said, every time a city builds something or the county builds something, those numbers are reported in this case, uh, on this topic, to the school board. So the school board can kind of project, okay, well, we see these houses that are coming online here. We need to put this into our, you know, our little uh, equations because we're going to need a school over here. We're going to need a school over there. I mean, it's the same sort of things that 
uh, you know, your restaurant industry does. Your hotels have something called a star report. Everywhere there is need and demand, they want to be kind of out front of that. Well, unfortunately, the school board, and it's not just this present one that's at fault, uh, this hasn't been done for 40 years. Uh, so the projections are way out of kilter. And like I said before, the overall countywide capacity for students, capacity, that means space, empty chairs, capacity is empty chairs or empty desks, is over 5,400 empty desks. So if you sent up a proposal by the school board to the state board of education today, we need another school. They're going to look at them and say, well, you've got 5,400 empty seats. Why do you need another school? The problem in Alachua County is all the empty school desks are over on the east side of the county. So now you have a whole geographic issue. And part of that goes back to something that you talk about all the time, which is busing and taking schools out of the neighborhoods, uh, which you know, serviced those uh, educational institution. But that's that's also, uh, you know, a decades-old issue. We're not going to unwind that very easily. Uh, what I anticipate happening is sort of this uh, accordion effect where I don't think you're going to change much in Newberry uh, because you can't, you know, most 95% of the school students in Newberry are within about three miles of the school. So you're not going to bust those kids that are three miles from the school over to even Parker Road for that, for that matter. Uh, but what you can do is start pulling the students eastward where you have basically the, you know, Newberry, for instance, as the anchor point and start slowly moving students that are further to the east, a little bit to, more to the east. Uh, for instance, uh, an easy solution here is uh, students around the Jonesville area. Alachua, or I think it's Irby, is the one on the south side of uh, Alachua, the elementary school. Right. So you could take the Jonesville students uh, and and they could be, instead of busing them to Newberry, which is six miles away, they could actually be bused up to uh, that Alachua school, which is, uh, I think it's 6.8 miles away. Or they could be bused over to Terwilliger, the new Terwilliger school on Parker Road, which is also under capacity right now and has plenty of seats, um, instead of sending them to Newberry. So you just basically take those Junesville kids and either move them to one of those two locations instead of going to Newberry. That would take a lot of the the pressure off of the Newberry schools, for instance. Uh, same thing with Archer. You have a lot of Archer kids in the Newberry schools, uh, particularly in the elementary school. Again, most of the parents in Archer, in most of the county for that matter, they work in the city of Gainesville at the university, at Shands or whatever. Those students could be, uh, if it's a function for parents, they could be taken to the new Terwilliger School on Parker Road, sort of on the way to work, right? Uh, if they wanted to parent, you know, parent uh, shuttle the kids there. Uh, so, I think those things are going to kind of happen. And uh, same thing with Hawthorne. You can't really move kids from Hawthorne, for instance, uh, over to Gainesville. It's just not functional. And and Hawthorne theoretically has capacity anyway, so they're not really in the mix. It's really the core from basically Jonesville all the way into Gainesville. And where most of the growth is between I-75 and just west of Jonesville, right? We have tons of 
development going on there. That's all county development. That has nothing to do with any of the cities. Uh, so the school board's kind of barking up the wrong tree when they're blaming the cities about the growth when it's, you know, as as the numbers bear out, it's really the county and the unincorporated. That's the word I was trying to look think of earlier, unincorporated uh, part of the county. That's very interesting. We're talking with Tim Martin now, who is a commissioner in Newberry, and that's why you um, figure he's obviously going to be interested because Newberry is one of the fastest growing parts of the county. And uh, that whole side of the county with uh, Newberry, High Springs, Alachua, uh, is radically growing. I mean, I, wouldn't, I don't like the word radically, but developing and people are moving there. And, and you know, we got the east side, the same problem. One thing, you know, talking about busing and getting to the east side, you can't get there from here because we've got roundabouts and and no no through, you know, nothing easy gets you to the east side of Gainesville yeah. on the west side. You know, it's it's incredible. They've done all this in name of traffic concurrency and right. bicycles and things like that. Right. And, um, you know, it, it's too bad. We just can't simply stop the music and let kids go to school down the street from their house. Yeah, you sort of have to make the, that would develop the that people build houses there then. Yeah, and in you know the county is a little bit of a victim of its own creation uh, on the growth side of pushing everything west uh, because they've also been very adamant about not growing anything eastward either. Which had that had that been allowed to take place, we may not be in the situation that we're in, uh, but. Yeah, you've you're trying to basically trying to you're trying to change the tires on the car while it's still moving here at this point because you can't stop it to change the tires. Well, I'm just noticing the slide we've got here, and um, you know, Lake Forest, fifty six percent, Terwilliger, sixty four percent, Williams, sixty one percent. Those are East Side schools, right? Yeah, yeah, almost all of them are. Let me pull up. Uh, I had something. So across the elementary schools, there's nine uh, schools that are uh, overutilized, which means they're over capacity. Uh, six are pretty much on par. And then you have another six who are actually under capacity. So there's 93% utilization there, 7% capacity. On the m- middle schools, it's not as bad. There's one that's over overutilized. That's for Clark. You have two that are basically on par, and then you have four middle schools that are under uh, under capacity. High schools, two over, two par, and uh, three that are under. You have Hawthorne, Eastside, and Lofton, which are all under underutilized uh, high schools. And uh, there's actually about fifteen percent capacity across the across the across you know the the high school the high school levels. Um, and just to go back, Archer to Terwilliger is 7.5 miles. Archer to Newberry is 9.9 miles. Uh, so those students going from Archer to Newberry are actually traveling further uh, than if they were just rezoned to the new school in Terwilliger. Uh, Jonesville to Newberry Elementary is 7.8 miles. To Irby is 8.6. Uh, so I think, uh, yeah, I said Irby is the uh, Archer school or, yeah, no, Alachua school. Jonesville to Terwilliger is 4.6 miles. Jonesville to Meadowbrook. Uh, elementary is 4.5 uh, miles. Uh, so I think there's some things that they could do that will alleviate pressure uh, right away. And the school board's goal is to actually have all of this in place 
uh, for the 2024 election. And you can go to the sbac.edu slash rezoning website, and they've actually done a pretty good job of trying to coalesce all this information in one spot. Uh, again, that's the uh, the school's rezoning uh, page at sbac.edu slash rezoning. And you can also send them an email through there. They sent up or set up a specific email address uh, for parents who have concerns about rezoning or have questions that they don't necessarily find right there on the website. I'm with Tim Martin, who's been studying this, as you can tell, pretty well. And um, anything that you can say about the reaction of the board to this kind of thing that they've inherited? Are they taking it on straight on? Or are they kind of ducking it? Or uh, I, I, I don't hear any. I don't hear any of the. For once, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't hear them trying to splice critical race theory into this or some of the other jam, some of the other political issues. This is really hardcore stuff here. Well, I, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm trying to uh, extend an olive branch to the school board to try to fix this problem. I kind of led with that at one of the open houses, the first open house that they had at Oakview Middle. Uh, so I, I, I've been trying to put aside uh, your previous bias with regards to that. Uh, I think probably inherently some of this does sort of seep through. I think that is part of what has created a little bit of this problem. Um, you know, there's actually a couple of schools, uh, Duval, Prairie View, and the old Terwilliger School. All of those schools are technically still on the books, so every seat that was assigned to those three schools is on the books and shows as capacity. If those three schools, for instance, were taken out and they were closed, then those capacity numbers go away. And it shows a more bleak picture for the school board at large, which helps build the case to the state of the need for more schools. Uh, and from what I understand, the uh, facilities director, I think her name is Suzanne Wynn, is sort of trying to address that with the state. Uh, but there is a process. You've got to have this whole kind of decommissioning process of the school. You've got to justify it. You've got to do all these different things uh, and send that report to the school or to the state school board to make sure that you can uh, technically close it. I don't think that they're ultimately going to close those schools. I think they're going to have to put them back in the mix uh, to, to address this rezoning comprehensive outlook that they're trying to venture on. Uh, the old Terwilliger school, uh, for instance, I think it had uh, 700 seat, 700 seats. They were using about 600 of them. Now they opened the new school on Parker Road, the, the new Towilliger School. They moved all those students over there, the 600 students over there, into a school that has a capacity of 900. Uh, so, unfortunately, when the, the, <laughs> when the, when the, the voter went to the poll, they were under the impression that they were voting to increase the school capacity by 900 seats at New, New, at New Terwilliger. Well, effectively, when they closed old, old Terwilliger and moved all the kids over there, they really only ended up with 300 extra seats, which is three times, three X the difference, right? So right. I thought that was a, that, I thought that was a very unfair bait and switch. Uh, that was under the old superintendent. And I think that was probably part of the reason why she was sent on down the road, thankfully. Uh, but 
it's all these things that are kind of in the pot uh, that we've got to try to make some kind of a, a soup out of. And, you know, when we were at the, at the joint meeting the other day, I told them, I said, don't be afraid to make a mistake. I think you need to be transparent. And I think people will be otherwise very graceful and forgiving to a certain extent if they know that you're trying to do the right thing, but you've got to get some of these decisions made now uh, and not wait until the last minute. Cause the last thing you want to do to a parent uh, right before school opening, uh, particularly kindergarten parents is throw them a curveball in the, in the summertime. I mean, goodness, if you can get some of these easy decisions, what I think are easy decisions, um, you know, launched even now, they have a whole year to marinate. They have a whole year to sort of vet out the little tiny nuances maybe that they didn't think of. Uh, but for goodness sakes, you have people that, you know, instead of having a two, <laughs> uh, you know, a two month warning, they have almost a 14 month warning at this point uh, and uh, can adapt, you know, people are pretty versatile. So the other thing is, is uh, you've got realtors out there that are telling, Oh, the school is zoned for this and zoned for that. All that has to be shelved right now. You can't tell us, tell a family, if you buy in this neighborhood, you're going to this school, uh, which certainly is going to kind of upset the housing market as well, because people, people like certainty, right? They don't, (laughs) they don't want to be uh, in this limbo uh, phase. So, yes, there is a lot going on. I hope, I hope that this school board has the capacity to deal with that. Uh, I think they're better at certain things than others. Uh, but goodness, you know, there's enough people in the room uh, across the county that could could potentially figure out figure this out. But the motivation has to be there uh, to figure it out and just look at where the rubber meets the road and not try to go. Going back to your question, try try not to weave in all of the social justice stuff. Because I think well, that's where you run into problems. Yeah, talking to a couple of teachers who looked at these things, um, um, and you know, we—I think we talked about this off the off the air. The assumption that a single family residence has just one family in it mm-hmm. is not necessarily so. When you have immigrants coming mm-hmm. in here across the border, coming to a sanctuary city, mm-hmm. um, you don't really know what's in that place. And the other thing is kind of weird that I didn't know, because I wasn't in the K through 12 system, but I talked to especially the elementary school teachers, but I think it's true of the entire system. You've got to take a student whenever the student shows up. I mean, if there's a busload of migrants comes in halfway through the school system, a school year that doesn't speak English. Yep. I have a friend who was the only, you know, fluent Spanish. They ran and got that teacher and, my God, come down and we got a hundred kids just dropped in here in the middle yeah. of the year. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's not the children's fault. <laughs> uh, so they can't be held responsible uh, for those sorts of situations. I'll tell you the numbers uh, that the school board works with. And this kind of comes off of a, uh, a report by done by, I think it's called Duncan Associates, if I remember right. Uh, in the elementary school, every single family generates Point one two children, middle school point zero six, high school point zero nine. On a multifamily, it's a little less; it's about half in the, in, the, in each category. Point zero six, point zero three, and also point zero three in the high school, respectively. But um, so, if you look at the elementary number in the single family home category, point one two children generated per home. Uh, if I'm doing the math right, that's basically every eight homes 
generates uh, one one child. Uh, consequently, with the middle school, every 16 homes. And then with every high school, you're talking about every, uh, maybe about every 12. Uh, so it's, it's, that's, uh, paints a little bit different picture uh, than what you're alluding to with multi-families, multiple families in the single family home. And I think that is, I think that's worth an observation, uh, at least. Now the, the numbers, uh, I'm sure there's some statistical value in the numbers with what, the, why, and how they're generated. Uh, but you make a, I mean, you make a very compelling argument there. And I noticed in the chat, Michael Lu- Lucas uh, had a question about whether or not to use existing facilities like the Oaks Mall or Sports Authority. Uh, funny he mentions that because several years ago, uh, when we could kind of see the light uh, at the other end of the tunnel from the train coming, train's here now. But when we saw the light coming. I had mentioned to the school board, you know, why don't you look at a short-term fix and get a little bit of breathing room uh, and try to cultivate some relationships with churches. Churches have a fair amount of seating capacity, right? And they're primarily empty Monday through Friday. Uh, That's something that never bore out. They never took that advice from what I can tell. Uh, But that was certainly a a short-term solution that kind of speaks with what Michael's talking about here with some of these existing facilities. Thank you, Michael, for that chat. Um, hope you can stay with us a little while because I had a couple other things I want to pick your brain about. Yep. For our break here, talking yep. with Tim Martin, who is uh, really my co-host or my substitute host or my younger version of me, I guess. Uh, oh, huh. <laughs> well, not entirely. I don't want to insult you. <laughs> but at least you're not compared to Uncle Joe every day. <laughs> no. No, no, no. Oh, my God. I wish it'd hang up on that just because of me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my, anyway, my good man, uh, we'll take a break here for the uh, uh, the weather by uh, Lewis Oil, and we'll come back in a little bit and talk about it. Look, we're both looking at the chat line. Uh, we got another thing to talk about that I hope I, I, I shared it with Tim before the show, and I think he's probably had time to look it over. Uh, yeah. About the Alachua County Commission. <laughs> You know, we'll talk about that, but I think I know what they're up to, at least what a, a citizen said when they saw this. They said, oh, they're just laying the groundwork for reparations. <laughs> Who knows? We'll be right back on the Ward Scott Files after we do the weather. Thank you. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. 
If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Wardscott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All these poop. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can you touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Welcome back to Ward Scott Files, Ward's Weather Now, brought to you by Lewis Oil, a fossil fuel gasoline service, Chevron. Patronize them, they patronize us. Well, 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 we're going to get into the 90s here today. So we're into the summer world. We're also in the hurricane season. Uh, We're dodging all that right now. And uh, we're going to 70s right now. So um, get ready to uh, do whatever you need to do in the early mornings if you're going to be outside. And be thankful that there's nothing gripping the air like what's gripping New York City, which is the worst air quality in the world right now. And uh, uh, certainly it has some irony in it because the president of the United States has publicly said, oh, don't you see this is another example of climate change? Well, if you just think about this, this is bull. Let's say that we do shut down all the smoking stacks in the United States of America, but shift them to China or Africa or somewhere where they're going to produce all the batteries for your electric cars. And we think we've done our real moral job of contributing clean air to the world's air. Well, no, you've just shifted it to another country because their air is our air. And if you don't believe it, Canada's air is our air. All the way down to where Plantation Mark is right now, he says he's able to smell it out in his garden. So don't get hooked on this stuff about climate. But listen, this is the fad right now. I don't think Tim and I are going to talk about it right now, but we'll certainly have a conversation with you someday about it because it's so obviously stupid. But um, think about it. The worst air quality right now is coming down to us from Canada. And the worst air quality is going to come to us from China. It doesn't matter. It's the world's air. So here we go. Uh, We don't know how long this bad air quality will continue. Had to shut down the Yankees game, a bunch of stuff in New York. It's pretty heavy duty. So um, we even had a control burn here off to the east of where we are uh, in a... uh, San Falasco controlled hammock burn, and it was affecting our outdoor behavior. So uh, 
Control burns are the essence. That's the whole deal. You burn them before you accidentally burn them. But here is something I know from being the chair of the Alachua County Rural Commission. The worst kept property is the public owned property. Now, all kinds of money is available to buy the land, to set it off the side so some evil developer doesn't get it. But then they never follow up with taking care of the land. I can't tell you how many times we had to go on the soapbox to get that done. So that's another hidden issue here. Uh, the public-owned land is not taken care of. And where you really have a problem is when you have a private owner of land contiguous to public land. And the, the lack of care on the public land is affecting his private land. And there's such a thing as Kogan grass and soda apple and this sort of thing that illustrates the point quite easily. So think about that worst air quality thing. Talking with Tim Martin, a good buddy of mine, who is obviously uh, uh, well-schooled on so many virtues of the uh, and vices of the, of, the, of, the, of the county. And the next thing we want to discuss, I want to thank Jennifer Cabrera for over at Lotto Chronicle. She is consistently doing very thorough investigative work. We partner with her. We advertise with her. She advertises with us. And uh, she's just really, we ought to be thankful we got her in the community here. But she's taken a really good look. You won't see this in the uh, Gainesville Sunset. Um, at the one more, I can only editorialize and say crazy conversation. Because I've, sh- I've shown it to a lot of people and they can't make sense of it. About adding equity and an environmental justice definitions and policies to the Alachua County Comprehensive Plan. Now, let me assure you, the Comprehensive Plan is one of the most boring documents you could possibly read. When I was on the Rural County Commission, we had to read that sucker, and it'll make your it'll make your eyes close. And the language is yeah, yes, uh, and it used to be in the Alachua County uh, Comprehensive Plan. There was nothing in there about addressing private property rights. But there was all kinds of things in there about environmental rights. And we had to deal with that all the time. And it was nuts. So now we're going to add, if this goes correct, and Tim's taking a look at it, we're going to talk about it, uh, adding equity and environmental justice definitions. And Tim, I've looked at the definitions. And once again, my eyes have glazed over. So I'm going to let you... Clear the deck here and straighten me out, sir. <laughs> uh, well, well, I, 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 gosh, I wish I could straighten you out uh, a little bit more. I, I think it's just sort of uh, the same thing in different packaging. You know, it used to be social justice. Now it's environmental justice. I think it's just a retread of the same kind of things. And it really, at the core of it, is just a way of, certain people being able to virtue signal that they're taking care of these other people. Uh, they feel like they have some sort of, uh, you know, responsibility uh, to do this uh, for these people, which, you know, it's sort of admirable to, on a certain extent, but when you start using the weapon of government to take the money from one person to give it to another, uh, really that actually seeds government with a little bit more authority over both people. And, all of this stuff, uh, you know, of course, I work for the John Birch Society. We've been fighting the U.N. for 60 years. 
the UN is really the driver of this. The UN wants to be the global government. And uh, under their Agenda 2030 initiative, they have a program called Sustainable Development Goals. And there's 17 of them. Uh, Number 10 is the actual uh, the line item that talks about uh, reducing inequity. And then you have number 17, or I'm sorry, number 13, which actually speaks to uh, climate action. So you have a marrying of these two of the 17 goals under the Sustainability Development Goal Program that the UN is trying to shove down everybody's throat. And they elicit people like Joe Biden and Klaus Schwab uh, at the over at the World Economic Forum to really drive some of these points home. And it's it's all ESG. It's all spokes off of the same UN hub of the wheel that's really driving uh, towards this global government. And they take it, you know, the the there were there used to be a program called ICLEI, I C L E I, and that was where you actually incorporate cities and county levels into this. So think of it like a uh, the city is a smaller cog. The county is a little bit bigger cog, and then you have, you know, the countries, and then you have these building blocks like the EU, uh, the North American Free Trade Organization. Now it's called USMCA. All of these are bigger and bigger cogs in this giant uh, global government machinery. Uh, So this speaks directly to that. Uh, I know it for a fact. Uh, I see it all over the all over the all over the place, if you know what you're looking for. And sort of, uh, you know, I had a boss, he explained it to me this way one time. He said, you can look at a at a hidden picture and you can't see, you know, the rifle in the tree branch and you can't see the fish in the bush. Uh, but once I point it out to you, then you can't unsee it. Uh, so that's really where my mind goes when I see this stuff. It's the, the UN in the bush. And I can't unsee it. So it sticks out to me like a sore thumb. But that's really what's behind all of this stuff. Let me just read a couple lines to the public here, our students, from the definition update of environmental justice. Mm-hmm. Environmental justice means, now this is your Elantra County Commission, okay, mm-hmm. that no group of people, no group of people, including those from marginalized, I, I, don't ask me to define some terms in here, I don't get them marginalized racial, ethnic, or socioeconomic groups should disproportionately bear the negative social or environmental consequences resulting from land use decisions. Well, I tried to think, I always like to think of examples. I got one. Well, I got one too. (laughs) We used to have the landfill in Archer. Right. Because Archer is the redheaded stepchild of Alachua County. It's Mike Barley's district if there were real districts. And one of the things I see here in this, Tim, single-member districts should stop some of this nonsense. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but I think you definitely uh, kind of bolstered the seat at the table that you have when you're kind of looking at it through that single-member district lens. Uh, I was actually thinking about the Walmart over on Waldo Road. Isn't that exactly why the county put the Walmart there to begin with? Because that was theoretically a disadvantaged area. It needed jobs. Uh, So now 
uh, you're going to throw another hypocritical wrench into the operation here because look out over the horizon ward. You're going to have people in these communities who don't have jobs. You know, they're poor for a reason and they're not going to have jobs and they're going to be crying that there's no, no jobs there. Well, what are you going to go back and tell them? Well, we couldn't put it there because you were disadvantaged, but you're disadvantaged because we wouldn't put it there. You know, it's, it's just stupidity of the left and the hypocrisy of the left. Uh, on full on full display here really is you know where I'm thinking and here's the other angle when you have the county or the state under the Alatro County land trusts going out and buying all this land up what are you doing to the price of land when you reduce the supply of available land you're driving up the price of the land so you know the people on the lower end of the social economic ladder are disproportionately damaged by that because now you've just spaced out the rungs a little bit more. And here in this program, they're talk about one side of their mouth that they're going to help the pro- problem, but out the, on the reality side, it's going to space out those rungs even further. So it's just uh, it's just mind-boggling, but nothing that I'm not uh, you know used to with this county commission anymore. The last sentence of this definition, students says. Environmental justice, and I don't, I don't, don't ask me what that is, is a principle and practice that emerged historically from people of color organizing to protect their environments, community rights, lands, and health. Now, <laughs> an example, I mean, do they have examples in their minds when they do this? Uh, well, I, I think that is a, a a line of code that's written in this program to give them a little bit of cover to make them sounds to make it sound like this isn't a new issue. This has been around for generations, and it's all started years ago. We're just sort of in a position now where we can actually ah, act upon I it. Gotcha. You know, I, I, that's kind of where my half-life empty approach would. That's a CYA deal. I think so. I think so. I think it just kind of, give, like I said, just gives them cover. Here is the paragraph students on equity. Oh, this is posted over at the com, right? Yes, this is posted at com. Jennifer Cabrera has written this article. There yeah, is- actually, there's a real healthy discussion going on over there in the comments section <laughs> on that well, website. Let's, so let's, I, jump, I, let's I, jump to that and quote some of that for us. Uh, some of the the comments that people yeah, are talking yeah. about. Uh, okay. Uh, is anyone asking for this? <laughs> if so, how much of the population is asking? Do these people stay up late dreaming of solutions for which there is no problem? Classic waste of taxpayer dollars. Taxpayer dollars <laughs> in all caps. Because I, I think the right and the commenter there is Jim. Uh, I think it is a sort of you know the. The way for you know governments to shuffle money around, like I said, take it out of one person's pocket to put it into another. And you know who's always sort of in the middle there somewhere making the transaction? Either a lawyer or a realtor. <laughs> right? I guess. And here's it. <laughs> Equity means redressing injustices that were previously incurred. Fully incorporating all segments of the community in the decision-making and planning processes. When have they ever done that? 
yeah. and establishing measures to prevent future inequities yeah. from occurring. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> your reparations is a four letter word now, Ward. I don't think if you you knew that, so they got to come up with another oh, another way of hiding that. And I think uh, whoever is you know observed that this is reparations in code or in disguise, camouflage, if you will. I I think they may have something there because it certainly certainly sounds like that. I think that's what this is laying the uh, building blocks for. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're right. They, they are a little bit concerned, though, according to Jennifer's article, about how this is going to fly in Tallahassee because DeSantis has got them kind of flinching. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mary Helen Wheeler says, uh, I just have a quick concern, mainly because going from what I'm watching happen statewide in public education and in terms of how we're addressing inequities and moving forward with specifics directed toward people of color. Are we under any kind of scrutiny from the state as to how we address these things locally? You better believe you are. (laughs) Oh, yeah. 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 I think they definitely will be. Uh, especially if, you know, the citizens of Alachua County, uh, bring that to the attention, uh, at the state level where it is, uh, appropriate and where it's needed. Uh, but I don't, you know, I don't want people to get caught in a trap of having to rely on the governor to do all of this I, stuff for well, us. It is our responsibility to get into those rooms and to send those emails and make those, those phone calls, uh, because 20 or 30 of us, 40, 50, whatever, uh, can do a heck of a lot more good uh, than trying to rely on a governor who's currently running for president to do this stuff for us. It's a very sort of delegation approach, which I don't think uh, really gets us very far in the end. I think the governor can only do so much. It's really dependent upon us to really take action here and do something about what we're what we're seeing right now. Well, the chair, how do you say her name? Prezia? Has that got that right? I never say it. Well, I say I I think it's Prizia. Prizia, okay, yeah. Her quote in this article by Jennifer Cabrera is: "Marginalized communities, due to economic distress, if they're economically distressed, uh, this is this this syllogism, this flow of logic is so wild. Oftentimes, they don't have the ability to advocate for themselves. Let me see if if, if that major premise, the minor comes from the major there." If you're economically distressed, we don't have a definition of terms, by the way, then you can't advocate for yourself. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't think that syllogism works, but it doesn't seem to bother Brazil. <laughs> no, it, huh? no, it certainly, it, it certainly doesn't. And isn't it? I, I think that is just so egotistical to think. Oh, well, that person can't possibly figure out how to get a driver's license. So we have to give them an ID. You know, it's the same, same retread again, different packaging, same story that, you know, these people can't help themselves. It really speaks to the, just how they think about other people. It just, I mean, it just, I mean, it doesn't drive me crazy. And I wanted to say that, but it just, sort of just sticks out like a sore thumb of you know, these people. If I could be so bold as to say, these people can't make it without Whitey. That's true. And Prezia, listen to this. She asked whether any progress had been made 
on improving community engagement because, quote, if they have a different lifestyle, if they have to work two jobs or they're a single parent, for us to have that equal opportunity means we'll have to have a different process for them to engage. Yeah, I did read. I did read. What read in that. the world? What in the world? You can't park downtown. That's mm-hmm. one of the problems. Yeah. Uh, the minister, uh, the uh, um, uh, the mayor of Angriville, uh, Bruce Nelson, used to argue this with the uh, the propaganda minister Mark Sexton. Mm-hmm. That where the heck were you supposed to park? Meanwhile, all the commissioners have reserved parking. Um, yeah. You know, it's not it's not the economically distressed. It's the fact that they don't listen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I get people all the time that say they've emailed you know so and so and they never get back with them. Uh, but you're right. I mean, they and they take this sort of minor premise and they apply it on the majority institution. So, it, you know, if you read through the article and you can check that out at alatrochronicle.com, like we were talking about it, she uses the example of, well, we can't have an 11 o'clock meeting because they're probably at work. Uh, so now they'll rearrange the entire system and try to be all things to all people. And therein lies where the inefficiencies of government come in. So every aspect that the government controls increases uh, inefficiencies, which ultimately costs money. All of that capital that is spent on inefficiencies in government, if that was left in the private sector and never went through that washing machine, boy, where could we be as a community if we had all those dollars back and actually allocate them appropriately? Because government is not, they're not invested in the process. They're just involved in the process. People outside Government, when they open up their wallet and they make a choice of what service or product to purchase, they're invested in the process. And it's shown time and time again that capitalism does the best job at, you know, efficiently allocating resources. So when we grow government continuously, continuously, we're just adding more and more inefficiencies that cost money, that get sucked out of uh, the, the private sector where it is best utilized and best deployed. Well, we've been sharing this with you. You can go take a look at it right now at alatualarticle.com. Uh, you will not see it in the uh, Gainesville sunset. Uh, you'll hear us talk about it. We just did in depth here and uh, share the show and uh, spread the word that they're trying to provide, quoting this guy Chumley, Ben Chumley, the senior planner. I used to hear a joke about planners. Uh, I think it probably was true, Tim. That when these guys went to planning school at the universities and went looking for a job, they said, oh, my golly, the first place you want one is Alachua County because they'll let you try all those crazy ideas that we we talked about here in, in the college, but not every community will. So they come piling down here and try this stuff here, and they find a receptive audience. Um, this guy Chumley says that the idea of providing a balance of economic opportunity Social equity and environmental justice and protection of the natural environment has been a foundation principle, the future land use element of the plan since 2000. I don't know about that, brother. I doubt that person was here in 2000. No, and, and this wasn't an issue back in 2000. Let's not kid anybody. There, there, that's more cover, right? Absolutely. Well, we run out of time, Tim. Thanks so much for stopping by. And uh, always great to have you. And, um, 
We'll see you soon. Anything else you want to close with before we head out? Uh, you could be the first place where I disclose that Rick Scott is a is a confirmed speaker for our upcoming October Lifetime Blue Jeans uh, fundraiser for the Alachua County Republican Party. Rick Scott will be our opening speaker uh, for that event. People can head over to com here in the very near future and start purchasing tickets as soon as we can get that uploaded on the uh, on the website. How about that? That's great news, man. I'm glad we put it in. I'm glad we put it in. So we'll spread that word. Rick Scott is the speaker for the Black Tie Blue Jean in the fall. He's one of. He's one of. Oh, one of. You're going you're to have a cliffhanger for the others? Okay. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, good enough. Okay, you heard first here on the Ward Scott Files from the chair of the Alachua County Republican Party, Tim Martin. Have a great day. Uh, thanks for listening and tuning in. Bye-bye.